Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Travis Fisher. And well, just Travis. Uh, For those of you that might have missed our last episode, just to get you up to speed, our extremely capable co-host, Rachel Wilfung, has left us. She's left Heritage for a great opportunity within the conservative movement, and we certainly wish her the best of luck. I said this last time, but I'll say it again. Rachel did a great job for us. I want to thank her again for her contribution to the Power Hour. But as of this point, she's dead to me. Travis, is she dead to you? No, no, No. she's still fine to me. Thanks, Rachel, for everything you did. Yes, thanks, Rachel. (laughs) I'm a little bit more forgiving than Jack. But alas, either way, it's time to move on. As has become a tradition around here, I want to remind everyone about the Power Hour's email account. Actually... Travis, why don't you remind everyone? Because I get it. it wrong every time. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. So give us your input. I promise, as I always do, and people can attest to this, I will respond to each and every one, and we will try to integrate your comments and your uh, suggestions into this here podcast. In fact, that's a little bit of what we're going to do today. So just hold tight, and I will get to that. Well, and I saw that. You you sent some responses this morning. I did. I did. Every yeah. morning I try to see what's coming in, you know. Yeah, see we're, what's up. we're caught up. We're caught up on the email. So caught up. Send, send us all the questions you have. Yes. And comments. We want to know if we're doing good, bad, or whatever. Now, Travis, I I feel like this show sort of developed a balance and it required three heritage people to make it feel right. And so I felt like we needed a a third heritage person to help at least transition away from the Rachel era. What do you think? Yeah, like a stool. (laughs) Like a stool. Yes, we need a third. We need three legs. Just the two of us, this thing would just tip over, clearly. Yeah, well, maybe if we'd made it like a bicycle and move fast enough, it would work. We'll we'll try that out on another episode. And we didn't do that, unfortunately. We weren't thinking. I didn't think Rachel would leave. This was a great gig. But whatever, you know. Like I said, she's dead to me. Kidding, of course. Now, while we're not ready to anoint a new co-host yet, so I thought maybe we could just bring a heritage person in as a guest. Now, as you know, I love bringing in the very best and brightest to the Power Hour, and we certainly have a lot of those here at Heritage. Um, now, unfortunately, none of them were available, <laughs> so, so I brought Richard Stern. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding, Richard. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you have to be a good sport to be on this podcast. We're, we're going to lose all our future guests. <laughs> Richard is one of the best and the brightest. Um, he's the director of Heritage's Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. He's a budget guy. Before he worked at Heritage, he worked a ton uh, on on Capitol Hill and high level positions, he was like directors of stuff and all kinds of things. He oversaw the creation of conservative budgets, so he's done has a lot of experience. Now he's not just our budget guy; 
but he has recently taken over a broader portfolio. So he oversees our tax policy, entitlement spending, and other fiscal issues. So, Richard, welcome to the PowerCast. Well, thanks, Jack. And, you know, being the third leg of the stool here, I hope that to lend— To clarify— you're not the third the, leg of the stool. By being the temporary third, <laughs> yeah, okay. le- third leg of the stool, I hope to lend the same you know, efficiency and stability that the federal government has by having three branches of government. Very, very good. So people are probably asking, why is Richard the budget guy with us today? I will present you with not one but two, not one or two, but three good reasons that Richard Stern is joining the PowerCast today. I'm sensing a motif. We have a we have a theme of three going on here. I'm, we do. I I'm, didn't even do that. I'm four. Okay. That was subconscious. Um, number one, we are a podcast, and we need to talk, and no one in this world can talk more than Richard Stern. Richard, would you admit that you're a talker? Absolutely. Now, you don't need to take my word for it or Richard's word for it. By the end of this here podcast, you all, I guarantee, will be saying, man, that boy can talk. <laughs> Number two, as we promised, we try to respond to listener feedback. And we've gotten a lot of, um, who is this Richard Stern guy? We want Richard Stern. (laughs) That's not totally true. Um, Though the sentiment is justified. The truth is we've gotten a lot of feedback that folks like the crypto episode, and they like this sort of energy-adjacent discussion. So we're going to be energy-adjacent today. Which brings us to number three, the real reason Richard is here. Congress just passed this debt limit bill. No one is better positioned to walk us through what that bill does and how it impacts energy and environment than Richard Stern. So, Richard, that was your introduction. Thank you sincerely for being here. Let's talk budgets, energy, environment, and whatnot. Well, Jack, thanks again for having me on. I'm, I'm glad that all of my fake email accounts got through to you asking to be on the show. Wait, we're not rolling, right? I didn't. No, no. So the, I think the, the important thing here, you know, for everyone listening is one of the goals here at Heritage we have, and as a budget guy, part of what I care about is a smaller government, which means that you get to keep the fruits of your labors. And it's not just about keeping the money. It's not just the dollars and cents. It's about keeping the stuff you produce, you work hard to produce. It's about having an economy where people can innovate, can build the future. Frankly, it's about getting to an America that has as much energy in the economy as, Jack, you have all the time. <laughs> well... Uh, that would be nice for everyone, I'm sure. One of the things we try to do here is provide a little bit of a foundation for folks. And I usually get too deep into this, but I want to still touch on it a little bit. Now, you oversaw budget production on Capitol Hill or conservative budgets, um, but spending keeps going up. So we know that conservative budgets are produced, but they never get implemented. Could you like quickly walk us through like how budgeting works like how do we how 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 yeah how, how just a quick overview of how it works so i think the important the crucial thing about this is the founders envisioned a process where congress got together they listened to their constituents they debated in full view of the american public what to do with your money because at the end of the day regardless of how the government finances itself it's all your money it's coming out of your wallet in some form or fashion Sometimes it's out of your paycheck directly. Sometimes it's out of the prices you pay in the store, right? So the idea is that the government was supposed to do that and responsibly decide what to do with your money. That's not how it works at all. So what's happened over time is that there have been layers and layers of new processes and and procedures and committees that have been created. The budget committee itself is only about 50 years old. 
And these have been created as kind of knee-jerk, frankly, desperate uh, attempts to force the Congress back to the original goal, which was to have real public discourse and debate in a responsible manner to take as little as possible from you to efficiently use it for core constitutional responsibilities. So at this point, the process we have is multiple layers that compete with each other that try to gum up the works and slow down the process. Sometimes it works. Most of the time what happens is you get a popular movement that says we want to spend a billion dollars. I wish I w that was – you know that's what the number is. And now it's trillions of dollars on whatever their favorite pet project is and then they can cram it through the system. And there are dozens of ways to flout around and go around what are technically the rules so they can get whatever spending they want in. And that's a lot of why we've just seen spending go up and up and up. How big is the federal budget right now? So right now it's about $5 trillion a year, but that's coming off of $6-plus trillion from, from last year and during the pandemic. But I think the better way to think of it is the federal budget is about a quarter of GDP. When you combine that with state and local governments, government spending in this country is in excess of 40 percent of GDP. So what that means is GDP that is what? Gross domestic product. Which is what? What's the equation? A really technical term. But what it is, right, is it's the dollarized value of everything we produce. So I think the real important okay. thing here is in your paycheck, 40 percent of what you produce of your gross pay of what's on the top of the sticker gets consumed by governments. Now, you pay a lot less than that on your pay stub in taxes. But the rest of it's hidden. It's through inflation taxes. It's through crowding out that destroys business investment. But basically think of 40 percent of your day, nearly half of your day that you're spending in the office, you're spending at your job, is actually just the feed the beast. It's just the feed local, state, and the federal government. And how big is our economy? So our economy is about $25 trillion right now, 26-ish, uh, in terms of you know the dollars you're thinking of that get spent right now. And so again, so the government is about a quarter of that. Uh, the, the federal government spending is right now about a quarter of that. And then uh, the other the other important thing about that is that it's also what the government's spending that money on, right? So it used to be, you know, if you ask most people, what does the government spend money on? They say the post office, the military. Roads. You know, roads, right? Roads it, are used to justify freaking everything. Exactly, right? So we have an easy kind of, you know, really wonky econometric way of talking about this. It's called government consumption investment versus transfers. Those are super technical terms. So basically, consumption investment is what the government spends on things like roads, the military post office. Transfers are what the government spends on wealth redistribution, quite literally. The last time that the dollar amount of spending of the federal government was even, just even, between those two, was 1974. Today, the government spends about four times as much on transfers and subsidies as they do on consumption investment. And that's where energy comes in. But before we get to energy, um, let's talk a little bit about this whole debt limit thing. Uh, and just to give folks like some context of what, what it is and how that fits into this process and what actually happened. Absolutely. So I think the important thing to step back and, and look at here is governments have exactly three ways of financing themselves. All of them are forcibly taking money from your paycheck, but we, we promise it isn't theft, right? So the three different ways that governments have to take money is they can either tax it. Everybody gets that concept. It comes right out of your paycheck, right? Unfortunately, or, yeah. they don't get that concept because <laughs> that's why they take it right out of your paycheck instead of allowing us to write that check once a year or even better, once a month. So every American, every taxpayer could get the full pain of that concept. I think that 
we've been they that the federal government has used that process to lie to us. So in fact, we don't understand what that concept is. Oh, I, you're definitely right about that. And uh, as a quick tangent on that, one of my my least favorite tangents things, are totally allowed. Well, again, you know, to to your point, I can talk. My my fiscal responsibility is matched by my verbal. Well, you know, so. I, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people think of their refund as being money that they get back. That's not what the refund is. The refund is that you overpaid taxes. You gave the government an interest-free loan that they gave back to you whenever you file your taxes, right? But – so that's one way they steal money. But I, I want to yeah. ask you about – just between us. Like I know you know better. I know better. Travis, I know you know better. Doubt it. But doesn't it feel good to get a refund? No. No? No. Here's the thing. Because I do I had to pay. Like the last few years I had to pay. And it hurts. Even though I know that's economically the better thing, I just got to say, I I like that that refund. Here's the thing. I've just been in this too long. When you know, when I was younger, when I was more naive, when I didn't do budgets, you know, my my hair, you know, wasn't as gray and all those kinds of things. I used to like refunds for that reason, but now it's just traumatizing. Travis, where are you on the refund versus pay? Well, I got to say, it it really, you have to factor in the expectation. If you're expecting to get a refund and you don't, oh, my Lord, yeah, that, that, is, that is the worst. Uh, but, I mean, I guess if you're not expecting a refund and you get one, it's a nice surprise. But, again, I, I completely agree with Stern on all this stuff. This is one of those things where you're just getting your own money back months later. You I know. just gave an interest-free loan. It's kind of stupid. I, 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 I know. I yep. know. I said I know. I said I know. But it is nice. same, it's Jack, always nice to get money. Come on. I'm the same way with sports stadiums. Like, I know public, the public should never fund a sports stadium. It's a horrible idea. But God, I love professional baseball and football. And those stadiums are so nice. Now, to be clear, I'm not speaking on behalf of Heritage coming out for public funding of stadiums. I'm just saying, as a human, I sometimes have contradictions. Jack, I think the compromise position here is the wor- I think we can all agree the worst budget is the budget where you did the math wrong. And so if you're expecting a refund and you actually owe thousands of dollars, that's the worst budget, right? But, but Jack, I will say, I think you bring up an interesting concept here, which is that you, as, as amazing and ethereal creatures you are, are still a human being. And so you're still susceptible to say, I know better. We should have a stadium. Why don't we just put a little bit of money into it? Right. And I think that's the other reason why the government spends so much money is you ask a lot of people. In fact, you poll people and you say, do you think we should cut spending, balance the budget? 80% of the population says, heck yeah, of course. But then you ask them, okay, what would you cut? And they give them options. And all of a sudden, that number dries up. Everybody's like, oh, wait a second. My stadium, my this, the grant to the local cheese museum, I can't cut that. And it's those little micro cuts. It's, you know, it's people being like, but I just really love professional sports. Like, I just really want that taxpayer bailed out you know, stadium. That's how we get where we are. Yeah. Um, I rudely interrupted you. You were going into the debt limit, and I promise I won't take us off that that thread until you're done. Tell us what the debt limit is, what the fight was, of and course. sort of how, how that fits into the overall context. Oh, of course. So, so I think the other thing is beyond taxes and all this, the other two ways the government can get money from you is to print it or to borrow it from money that's existing, right? So the debt ceiling is a limit broadly on the amount of money both that the government can borrow and can print. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait, wait, wait a second, where does the debt ceiling come into printed money? Good question. This is one of my favorite things about the federal budget, and it's where we hide all kinds of stupid stuff in the way that we classify things. So when the Federal Reserve prints money and then uses it to buy federal debt, which is really to say that the federal government prints money and hands it to the federal government, 
it's logged as more debt because they've purchased debt issued by the Treasury Department. So, yes, this is very much the conversation. Say say that again because that's hard to follow. Yep. This is very much a conversation of the government borrowing money from itself. So the federal – the Treasury issues debt, goes to the well, goes to the markets and says, hey, I want to go into debt. And then there's a lot of real people and real businesses looking at them being like, you're nuts. I don't want to give you money. And then the Federal Reserve kind of walks up if you're imagining this this marketplace. And the Federal Reserve says, oh, hey, government's selling $1,000 worth of debt. I have $1,000 in my hand. I'll buy the debt. That I just printed. That I just printed. And that's the, and that's the real thing here, right? So it would be like if I had debt and I also had a printer and I paid off my own debt with the money I just printed. Which gets to the interesting question here is what distinguishes you, Jack, the counterfeiter – I'm sorry. I mean the money printer. I would say versus the free banker. Ver, right, yeah, yeah, but whatever. Same difference, right? Versus the Federal Reserve doing it. And, and the answer is – that this is the joke I always say. There's only two people that can get money without producing real value for somebody, and it's criminals in the federal government, not to be redundant, of course. And so that's exactly what it is. So the debt limit and the windmill manufacturers. Yes. Well, there's a third category, and these are you know sophisticated criminals. These are criminals who buy the law so that they classify themselves as not being criminals. So the debt limit is a total limit on the amount of issued debt that the federal government has, but it doesn't distinguish between how much of that is that debt is bought by real people, real businesses, or is bought by the Federal Reserve with newly printed dollars. I'll give you one better. It doesn't even count either when foreign governments buy our debt, which is also, by the way, central banks printing currency. They're just printing not our currency, but that's a whole other conversation. So the critical thing about the debt limit I always tell people is it's an indispensable tool to safeguard the American people against the abuses of government. With no debt limit, there is literally no limit to how much the federal government can say, hey, I want to spend money on my friends and this and that and a new windmill. And the Federal Reserve can walk up and say, as fast as the money printer works, that's as fast as I can give you money. What the debt ceiling does and says no. It says there's an actual limit on that. Now, all of the fear-mongering about default and all that kind of – all of that was crap. The government takes enough tax revenue to satisfy all of its actual obligations, defense, Social Security, Medicare, VA benefits, paying off bondholders, real bondholders, the interest payments. So what the left was really telling you, what Janet Yellen was really telling you, is that they make promises, promises in your name to their friends, and that if you didn't let them raise the debt ceiling, if you didn't let them print that money, pouring water into the wine of your life savings, imposing inflation tax on you, they couldn't keep up their promises to their friends. The, the government is the worst best friend you've got. So, Stern, I, I think we should have you on the dark web version of the podcast where we do say things like taxation is theft and all that type of stuff. We would never do that here. No, but, you no, know, we, there is a dark web version. Yeah. It's an awesome version. I, I, I'm a, I, I thought this was the dark web version. I've, no. So I think I have to throw out the rest of my, my no, prepared sp- remarks here. Speak then. freely. Oh, I thought you I were going to say – I do actually believe taxation is theft, but we, that's, a, that's a separate item for a separate day. Well, right. I, I mean how do you define when people with guns that have the legal right to use it like point them at you and say, give me money now or I shoot you? It's not just, that's not theft, right? It's not just that, but it is that. I mean Richard and I have worked, worked together for a long time and um, – I mean I'm not the first one to have said this. But it's not just that they have guns. They, uh, they can put you in jail. They can kill you legally. And they can take all your money if you don't comply. Like, that's messed up. 
That is messed up. It, it, perhaps it's necessary and um, moral if the country operated as it was originally intended because absent anarchy, there needs to be something, and that something needs to be backed up by something. And three good things to back something up is the ability to uh, put you in jail, take your money, and kill you legally. Like that's, But whenever the government has become so expansive – and they're using that power over us to compel us to do everything, like, almost imaginable. Then it's like, come on, guys. Is this as democratic as what our founding fathers were thinking, or is this something else? Like, it's a, it's a real question I don't think people think about because, because we've been all subjected to the, the cliche of the frog in the boiling water. And they like to rub our bellies when, when they're doing it. Like, they give you a little bit. Here, have a little bit of this sugar, and we'll just take a little bit of your money. And then, you know, before you know, you can't build what you want on your private property. You can't buy the stove you want. You can't drive the car you want. You can't develop the energy resources you want. You can't do, like, you, you can't start the business you want. You can't put the faucet in your house that you want without going down to the government and saying, Mother, may I put this faucet in my house? Are you kidding? That is what we have, and that's why... Whenever you combine that that sort of bureaucratic morass backed up by that sort of power over a population, man, that's a recipe for uh, not awesomeness. Not awesomeness, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that the founders put in the Constitution was an unassailable right to life, liberty, and property. They genuinely believed in those God-given rights to people to have your agency, to, have to keep the fruits of your labors. They enshrined it in the Constitution. And so the question right is – can you have any of those with the government you just described, right? with a government that abuses that recklessly with zero thought, tries to just take whatever, to regulate everything? And I think this gets to the insidious nature of government, frankly. And, and you know, what I always tell people is the left has it easy because the left just has to say, I'll build this thing for you. Whatever ails you today, I'll build it. I'll shoot somebody you don't know. I'll get their money and I'll give you this thing. What you can't point to is who's got a haircut to be able to pay for that. What you can't point to is the innovator who will never make the innovation, the businessman who never got into business, the amazing thing that never gets created because the government kneecapped everybody, chopped heads off left, right, and center, the way you talk about. So, you know, one perfect example we've got on this, a, a tragic but natural experiment that happened, is North and South Korea. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the satellite photos where you see South Korea full of life and light, and North Korea dark, desolate, impoverished. So at some level, people say, well, how about this one stadium? How about this one grant, this one tax? We'll just print a little bit of money. We'll do this. We'll do that. And they'll say, you can't possibly know what the destruction is, what the, the random innovator you say will come, but you can't name him. You can't point to this one or that one. Sure. I can't point to the exact thing you're destroying that you don't know. But what I can point to is if you do what North Korea did, which is exactly what you're talking about, you will remain a backward Stone Age country where everybody dies young, where nobody is, has any kind of material sustainability whatsoever. Or you can do what South Korea did. And, and that is the stark divide there. And so at some level, what this requires, I think, is faith. It requires faith that people can live their own lives, that they will pursue their, their dreams and innovations, that the innovations of a few people turn into amazing material of life changes for everybody in society. And that's when we're fighting for freedom, that's what we're fighting for. Except, I would argue, it doesn't require faith. What requires faith is the leftist vision. Because the facts tell us this. 
before we used conventional fuels like gas, oil, and coal, we all made about $1,000 a month or a year in, um, in today's dollars for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We never made, no one made more than that. I mean, except for the, uh, the kings and the queens and their buds, but no one else made more than that. And then all of a sudden they discover that they can use gas, oil, and coal. And then you have an industrial revolution. And then you have this massive increase in standard of living. For everyone who has access to those things, every, every culture, every society that has access to those things, within the context of free markets, thank you, Adam Smith, you have this massive growth in all things awesome. Now that you have, maybe, to me, in all things awesome, granted there are other things that come along with that. Um, but from a standard of living standpoint, I think we can say all things pretty good, if not awesome. So, like, we know that happened. We also know what ha this happened. Every time you try to um, impose socialism and communism, you get nothing but death and destruction. So the faith doesn't come on my part because I can't show you what hasn't been invented yet. The faith comes on their part who says, oh, just let us control everything and we'll make your life perfect. And the arrogance of it, right? I, I mean, you're absolutely right, of course. We had thousands just, of years I, of limits. I'm keeping track. I think that's the second or third time. You said that I was absolutely right about something. Oh, I, we'll get to more of that because I, you know, I, I want to be the third leg of the stool, you know, not to, you know, remove the temporary. So I got to keep saying that. But you're right. We had thousands of years of windmills, no industrial revolution. But you know, I'll tell you one even on that as well, right? What does the left always say, right? Give us more of your money. Let us control more of your life. And they try to paint this image that somehow, if you're doing better, it comes at the expense of something else, right? So for you to have the material quality of life that we're talking about, to have longer lifespans the spotted owl and the sage grouse. This is a joke, but this is what the left does. And the tragic thing is they convince people of this, right? You know, that the climate is getting worse because of this. The, the actual truth is, and, you know, we've done research here at Heritage showing it, I, you know, an enormous amount of deforestation happened, an enormous amount of environmental degradation happened in pre-industrial areas that didn't follow this kind of formula, right? It's the industrial, wealthy, modern countries of the planet that use fossil fuels that have reforested the planet that have cleaned up air quality and, and gotten rid of air pollution. It's not the poor countries. In fact, countries like China and India that have embraced this kind of socialistic uh, attempt to keep their populations poor, they're the ones that produce the most pollution, right? And so I think this all comes back to, and again, you're asking you in the debt ceiling fight, this is what it came down to. It was a movement of conservatives fighting for what you're talking about, the facts that when we know what's happened historically, fighting for people's right to build the future they want versus the left that was saying, no, we want to control your life. We want to degrade your quality of life. But here's the worst, and here's where the betrayal came in, in the, in the debt ceiling fight. There's this other group of people. They're not socialists, but they're not true conservatives that believe in your right to freedom. They're what I like to call the generic version of the Democrats. They're Republicans that tax, they spend, they regulate. They just do a little bit less of it than the Democrats do. And so it's that group that, in my mind, betrayed conservatives, that gave us a weak bill that's got some wins in it, but a bill that completely missed the mark on what we need to do to stop the government from its wholesale theft of the American people. Now, um, I don't. I, I might be putting you on the spot a little bit here. So, if you don't know, if if you can't answer, that's fine. Um, from an energy and environment standpoint, can you juxtapose a little bit what was in what the conservatives wanted to achieve, and and uh, Travis and myself can fit in, uh, contribute to that as well. 
as opposed to what ended up being in there. And then we'll have a quick discussion, maybe a debate, about whether or not what was in there was worth the paper was written on. Uh, absolutely. Well, I say most documents from the government are not worth the paper they're printed on, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, so, you know, limit save grow. So this was, you know, Republican leadership actually taking their cues from conservatives did, I think, kind of three broad things that were really good on energy and environment from our standpoint, right? So one was that they repealed the energy or the vast majority of the energy tax credits that were in the, the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act. Now, these are hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of tax credits, but it's worse than that. This wasn't just a subsidy to the windmills and the green energy people. These were subsidies that were designed to leverage moving trillions of dollars away from oil and coal and, and all manner of other industries that would have been productive and the shift them to building more of these windmills we talked about that marked the pre-industrial era. So that's the first thing that bill did was got rid of not just hundreds of billions of, of stolen money from taxpayers, but money that would have moved trillions of dollars out of productive industries and into this, this green waste. The other two things that the bill did was kind of broad deregulatory action. So one was the bill HR1 that passed through Congress, which got rid of a lot of, of, of kind of crap regulations that stopped domestic energy production, that actually allowed for more permitting and things. You know, when we were talking here at Heritage, we figured that you might see something like a 17% increase in oil output over you know a, a decade or so time period just from the provisions that were in HR1. So a tremendous increase in energy availability to people. Uh, and then the other bill or the other component of the bill was the RAINS Act. Now the RAINS Act is a bill that would mean that all major regulations have to have a vote in Congress. Now what's crucial about that, and this goes beyond energy as well, is that as we were talking about before, part of what the founders recognized is that the power to legislate, to use the strong arm of the government to compel people to do things, has to be done frugally and thoughtfully and should be done by the legislature that represents the entire American people. Regulations are the law that are done by, as Obama said, with a pen and a phone by one guy or a bunch of bureaucrats that are unelected. What the RAINS Act would do is give that legislative authority back to Congress to actually review regulations to stop them from going in. And so that would have had a tremendous impact going forward on stopping these new regulations that the left loves to do that would tie everything, including our ability to produce energy. Too much democracy there. Yes. We need, we need to empower the experts. Now, the other question you asked me was, how does that compare to what's in the present bill? Well, What's Travis, a, were you about to say something? Yeah, I had something because I think it's an important thing to note for folks that might not be following this as closely as we are. The Limit, Save, Grow Act was passed in the House. It was it was basically our side of the deal. It was like the House R's came together and said, look, this is what we want to do. And, you know, it's unfortunate that that wasn't basically the line that we decided to hold. It was it was bizarre to see. We had, you know, I, I think of it as a pretty big win that that act all the all the pieces of it I, I liked then it's a question of well do you just like snatch defeat from the jaws of victory here because it seemed like we the posture was good we had a strong you know angle on the the whole you know we, we were supposed to go to the white house and talk about it and then what what came out i was honestly just kind of shocked and I, important just to reiterate what richard said earlier they, the, the conservatives were positioned so well with that bill. Right. And that was underscored by the fact that Treasury could have paid all of the 
sovereign debt that the United States had. There would have been no default. Um, yet, gone. And to Travis's point, so, you know, I went on and on and on about all of the amazing things in Limit, Save, Grow because the comparison is basically none of it ended up in the bill that became law. We, what we got was permitting reform, some of which was good, some of which actually makes it easier for the left to get more electric vehicle tax credits out the door. But I think, Travis, you hit the nail on the head there, right? Which is that what happened here is that the the kind of good conservatives that actually represent the things that they promised their constituents that actually represent these foundational values that are still in the hearts of Americans, they were able to force leadership in the House on the Republican side to put together a bill that, by the way, Limit Save Grow by no means would have saved this country from the fiscal trajectory we're on. It would have been a solid down payment. Quite literally, it would have paid for about a fifth of the deficit changes that we need to do over the next 10 years. And that down payment got completely cashed out because, as we were talking before, the leadership is the generic version of the Democrats. They completely missed the opportunity. They completely gave in and gave up on trying to fight for the America that they promised their constituents, showing just how small that group of people are, tragically, that really mean what they say when they promise to Americans that they'll keep the fruits of their labors and they'll have a limited government that doesn't just abuse its power to control your life. So what ended up being in the debt limit bill? From an energy environment standpoint. Basically, just a little bit of NEPA permanent reform. Now, to be fair, I think some of this is good, right? It, it, it tasks, you know, it says if you've got a permit, go through. Yeah. But, uh, we should define NEPA. Um, do you know what NEPA is? I'm going to say National Environmental Policy Act. 1973, has, I believe. Has to do with permitting, especially with respect to federal agencies and federal lands, and pretty much it's going to be involved in any, in any big project. Yeah, anything, I believe, that touches, um, that the federal government has oversight on requires a federal permit or touches in any way the federal government, that then opens it up to NEPA, which um, not only is NEPA an environmental um, statute itself, but it impacts all these energy projects because they are all like nuclear power so many of them uh, live under some federal regulation statute. Or and if I can be squishy land. for a moment, it's not like I dislike the idea of environmental policy or having somebody review it. What it's turned into in practice is this reason to sue the crap out of anything you don't like and shut it down. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Uh, well, you are being squishy because the right answer is to abolish NEPA yesterday and allow states to oversee the, um, the, the the permitting process for major projects. And if they deem an environmental angle to that, then they should be um, in charge of that, at least until we privatize everything. I was going to say, I was going to save that for the dark web version where we also kill EPA and everything. And we just run on a abolish system of, it. Of, yeah, of, of private property rights like we're supposed okay, to. To but, be clear, yeah. we do not need to put a... Um, a a as as a reasonable talking point a, as a reasonable discussion point to abolish EPA. We can do that right here on the regular web. I would argue the, it should not be um, that should not be something that's pushed into the dark web. The dark web summary of what NEPA is for for everyone at home that's like, what is this? It means that if you're building some really cool thing, a new building, a, you know, an oil well, a highway that's going to connect communities, and if a spotted owl decides to randomly grace you with its presence and land on your construction site, that's it. File for bankruptcy. Go home. You're not going to build it. That's what NEPA is. Fair enough. Um, so so how do, do, so, so, as a result of this bill, can we kill spotted owls? 
Well, I would never say that on the, the non-dark web version of this. It's no, more, we know. can't kill spotted owls, nor should we. But they can be managed. They can be managed. So I think there are two – there's a bunch of little things in this reform. It, it was formerly known as the Builder Act when it was a standalone bill. But there's two kind of major things that are near and dear to my heart in this. So one – and this gets into the uh, abuses of government – is that right now you file a permit on something and you might have a dozen different federal agencies that all look at you and say, oh, I can't look at that. It's it's Harry's job over there. Oh, oh no, you should go talk to this guy over there in that agency. And so they can give you the runaround. There's no agency that is a central point collection agency that you work with. And so, you know, if you think, you know, going to the, you know, DMV and getting a new license is complicated, you'd be in for a treat on this. What this bill does. Licensing should, should also be abolished, by the way. Exactly. Why I need to go to the government to ask their permission to drive a car. Come on, man. That should be handled by insurance companies. Exactly, right? No, I'm with you on that 100%. And so it's another one of these, you know, Jack is absolutely right. Again, I, I, we're keeping score with that, right? That's and, five. And so what happens, right, is that under this law now, there's a point agency that is the main point agency for your permits. So you can go to them and say, hey, what's happening? What's going on? And this brings me to the second point. The other thing is that there are in current law – all kinds of timelines that they have to follow. They have to get this from you and that from you and give it back to you. But again, being the government, they can also just break their own laws whenever they want. So they would routinely say, oh, did, did I need legally to get this thing back to you, you know, within six months? Has it been 15 years? Did I not get it back to you? Oh, whoops. What this bill does is put real penalties down for missing those timelines. So I think those are both certainly very good. Can things. any bureaucrats end up in jail? I don't know off the top of my head. I would like to think so, but I, I would like to think in general that it is possible for bureaucrats to end up in jail. <laughs> I'm oh, trying man. to imagine the excuses like, oh, I thought I sent that email. It was stuck in my drafts. It was it was in my outbox. It never went. I'm sorry. It's been 15 years. It's a good, it's a good excuse. <laughs> I've uh, fallen back on that one myself a few times. Um, well, so we're focusing on the cutting regulations part, and I do have one point on that, but I also want to save some time on the cutting subsidies part because that has been my... That's my hobby horse. But, you know, this whole NEPA reform stuff, a very important point made by James Danley when he came here to the Heritage Foundation was, well, there's two things. There's the, if Congress does this now, I guess, is there anybody that considers it done and therefore it's, we're not going to revisit permitting reform as a concept for a while. So we've done it and check the box and we're done and we, we can walk away. There's that part. And then there's the, if we're worried about litigation risk, Offering a tighter timeline, enforcing a tighter timeline doesn't necessarily solve that problem. You get things out the door earlier, so you get an agency order out the door, but then the court review is going to be just as hard and the, the lawsuits are going to be just as hard. And so you've just given them less time to come up with a better product. That yeah, We have a real risk that the product itself is going to be worse and that they're going to lose lawsuits more because of it. No, I, I think that those are all valid points. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. That's the way the Congress functions is they do one half of 1% of the thing they promised and they're like, I did it. And you're like, what the heck? But that's exactly what Congress works. Well, it's a talking point. It's like, oh, we handled this. We tackled mm -hmm. we tackled permitting reform. They love saying they tackled things. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big tacklers, those guys are kind of, they're all going around tackling this and tackling that. Well, when you're as insecure as you have to be to be in this body of Congress, you want to, you, you know, puff your chest out. You want right. to make it sound like you could tackle anything. <laughs> <You know. laughs> These guys are around Capitol Hill all tackling each other. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, putting aside 
members of Congress tackling each other. <laughs> this is why this is why this is funny. Um, well, it's funny on its face, but I'm imagining in my head, underneath all the congressional office buildings or where like the cafeterias and these hallways are, and it kind of feels like um, I don't know, kind of like a an institution of some type. I'm imagining in my head in these sort of narrowish hallways. Yeah, you know, these guys all tackling each other, like saying how they tackle stuff. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. If they had that kind of backbone, <laughs> we'd be in better shape. What actually at happens, least they would provide something of some value because that would be tremendously entertaining. Exactly. In- instead, what happens is they passive aggressively stare and then don't stare at each other in the hallways, and then they look at their staff to be like, "Are you making eye contact?" It's <laughs> exactly what you think is happening. <laughs> it's getting so unbelievable. These guys run the country. It's so unbelievable to me. Um, I am very concerned about the point Travis made up. Not made up. <laughs> brought I, up. I invented brought a problem. Up. No. No, it's yeah. a huge problem because that's Travis, exactly you have a future in the government then. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm since I invented it, I'm the only one who can solve it clearly. So right. please hire me. Right. I think that that's a huge problem. It's one of the reasons I'm less enthusiastic about it, to be quite honest. The other thing is, and maybe my skepticism is not warranted on this one, but as part of the bill, it allows for an extension of those timelines if necessary. So I'm just like, I know you. there has to be some pressure relief point in case you really need that. But I, ju- I can just see that being used to to draw things out. And really, I mean, I, 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 did, I do believe it, but I said it tongue in cheek. It, we need to abolish these things. These underlying statutes were all brought to bear. In a very different time, very different place, our environmental concerns were different. Our energy concerns, our understanding of energy were all very different. And that we continue to muddle around the edges on these things, um, I think, will continue to keep us on the same trajectory we are on across the board. And what we really need is a a a um, a real effort within sort of our community, you know, the think tank, the conservative movement community. But we also need conservatives to begin, begin questioning the credibility of all of these things. You know, I go, I can't go do a podcast without a, a rant on the Energy Policy and Conservation Act because I just think it's, I just hate it. But NEPA and even, you know, some of the, the really foundational environmental acts that we have because they're all being used in perverse ways they were, were never meant. So I'm not suggesting that we sh- should never have had the Clean Air Act, though I could suggest that. But to be clear, I'm not suggesting that. Certainly, I'm suggesting that the Clean Air Act's utility, as currently applied, is no longer warranted. And if we need a clean, if we need an act to clean our air, we need a new act to clean our air, despite it being cleaner and cleaner every day that we exist as a country. Um, notwithstanding the Canadian wildfires, Canadians always doing their Canadian thing, blowing their pollution down here. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because as a, as a former congressional staffer that worked for- I thought you were going to say as a former Canadian. <laughs> well, that's it, right. As a, as a former congressional staffer for an office in California where they have about as many wildfires as are going on right now, this is one of the things that's near and dear to my heart. So I'll give you, I think, two stories that highlight exactly what you're talking about, about the story of regulations in America. So one, not related to this, is that we passed a law decades ago to define the waters of the United States, more principally to define the navigable waters of the United States. And so this was an attempt to say that the Mississippi is an important highway for the country. And, you know, if a local government wanted to pile a bunch of dirt in the middle of the river so it stopped the river, that was a bad thing. 
Now, the question you're asking yourself is, okay, so decades later, what is the definition of a navigable water in the United States? Today, 98% of the landmass of Iowa, which last time I checked didn't have a coastline at all, is considered an inland sea. It is considered a navigable bodied water under WOTUS. And this is because the Obama administration and the Biden administrations brought it back again, literally defined any land in which water could touch it that is within an absurd distance from a actual tributary is defined as a navigable water. So that gives you, I think, the scale of what has happened with regulations and the Clean Air Act, as you said, that we should never have put into law, has been abused in a similar kind of process. But then I'll give you another one. I think this is the perfect example of where government central planning goes completely wrong. Logging companies run by competent people used to thin forests. They would strategically go through and thin the wood that was going to die soon. They would do it in a way so that you didn't have wildfires. They would replant the trees. The logging industry in this country, long before we had any of the acts you're talking about, reforested this country and made good on the newer science that we had, long before the federal government got in a regulator or anything of that nature. So what did you have before these regulations? You had lots of American timber. You had robust forests. You had almost no wildfires. And wildlife actually had a refuge in these forests. So what did the liberals do? They came in and said, oh, no, if you chop down a single tree, you're morally bankrupt and we need these bureaucrats to do this. So now what happens here and in Canada and other places is you can't touch a tree. So because you can't touch any of the trees. We even have, if I'm hugging it? Even if you're hugging it. Wow. Right, exactly. Well, because, because you might endanger where those spotted owls could land, right? And so now what happens is we have no timber and forests that are densely packed that are just kindling waiting there. And so, you know, weirdly enough, what the left misses is when there's a wildfire, it stops being a wildlife preserve altogether. And so what the left has done is given us tinderboxes for forests that light up easily, that kill every animal that's in there, that kill the people that live in the forest. And what we end up with is scarred land with no trees and no vegetation and no timber. And that is, I think, the perfect description of socialism. You end up with absolutely nothing at all and even worse environmental outcomes. Yeah. Oh, I got something to add, though. The worst part is then they're like, they don't take any blame for that. Yeah, yeah. They turn around and say, look at this devastation from climate change. Therefore, we need to and capitalism. So therefore, <laughs> we need to socialize everything else. I mean, that's like that's exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah. Can, can, can we pivot to subsidies now, please? Because it's all part of this existential threat of climate change. We absolutely it doesn't matter how many trillions of dollars you throw at the problem. It's never enough. And the thing that bugged me was, yeah, we had the Limit, Save, Grow Act that was going to claw back some of these Inflation Reduction Act, so-called Inflation Reduction Act subsidies. And one thing I don't think people realize is how open-ended the subsidies are. So we would be on the hook, the U.S. taxpayer would be on the hook to pay out these production tax credits, all these tax credits of different sorts that go to wind, solar, batteries, hydrogen, a bunch of other stuff. We're on the hook until, of course, there's no end date. It says either 2032 or whenever the U.S. reaches a 75% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions using 2022 as a baseline. Why that's important is because CO2 emissions have already been going down. So if you say 20, you know, 2005 is the baseline, that's a different number. But this is, in essence, and I'll go on record saying this, this can be in the not dark web version, that is an unreachable number. Given everything I know about the industry now, that puts us on the hook for decades. Mm -hmm. Unless there's something that happens tomorrow or we get like this great new revolution, all sorts of new technology, that'd be great. 
based on what I know now, that's that's an open-ended, could be trillions, could be multiple trillions of dollars. And we, so that's what was on the table that could have been clawed back as part of the debt ceiling stuff. And it just was not, and it seemed like such a missed opportunity. And I think, you know, uh, one thing you bring up there, right, is if something new happened, we're unlikely to have something new happen precisely because of the subsidies you're talking yeah. about. So, you know, if you're, a, you know, an innovator, you've got a good idea, you're an engineer, you could go into something that would actually pay off or you can make free money from the government. And so this is that insidious nature, right, is it's not just the theft of the money for the subsidies. It's not just that they're leveraged to move trillions of dollars of other investments. But it's that there's some, there's some, you know, Edison, there's some Tesla, there's some inventor who would figure out the solution who won't. And they'll never know it and will never know it because instead of going into something that nature kind of induced them to go into, instead of going into something that struck them as a fruitful scientific endeavor, now they're going to go into what some really incompetent bureaucrat who has no idea about the science, the engineering, anything, just said, you know what, I feel like writing a grant today. That's what they're going to go into. So they'll never make that innovation. So we will lose decades, perhaps centuries of innovations the way that most human civilizations have because they embrace the same kind of policy you're talking about where they subsidize their friends, they subsidized what the king thought was an interesting thing to do, and they lost that kind of innovation that would have saved us and would have given us better quality of life. And it even happens to the technologies that they're trying to promote. I don't know if wind will ever be successful on its own, but I know it never will be successful with the subsidies in place. The best way for wind to be successful or solar or whatever is to get rid of the subsidies, allow the capital to flow to the most promising ideas, the most innovative folks, and then we'll see if it's helpful. Now, I, I for, as a public matter of public policy, I think that policy should be neutral across all energy, all, all, over most everything. Um, certainly overall energy policies. I'll stick with that since that's my responsibility here. Um, but personally, I have great um, optimism about nuclear energy. That nuclear energy, notwithstanding, it can meet climate CO2 reduction goals if that's what someone cares about. I don't. I care about having abundant, clean, affordable energy to fuel America and the world and to lift people out of poverty and to spread prosperity and all those sorts of things. What irritates me to no end and has, and this is what my career has been about, and it's been futile, unfortunately, is arguing that all the subsidies that the Republic, Republicans tend to like nuclear energy and they tend to express their love of nuclear energy by subsidizing nuclear energy. And it just drives me bonkers that if you would just get out of the way address the underlying issues, of which there are many, and let it succeed or fail on its own. And, um, but no one can do that. Like, it's just, it's like, it's like a, um, what's it called when you hit your knee? A reflex, a, ref a reflex. Like, they just cannot not do it. So I think, you know, the, the old adage, right, the devil's in the details comes into this here, right? Which is that not all solar panels are equal, not all nuclear reactors are equal. And if you can just think in, you know, kind of, you know, at a microcosmic level, if you say to somebody, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars a year for free, what I want you to do is X. It's some job, right? And you say to them, you can't get fired. The quality of the work doesn't matter. It doesn't, I, I'm not selling this to somebody. I'm not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like think tank people, right? This is, this is actually the kind of deal that we have, right? Is that person going to do good quality work? Maybe, but there's no way to know. Now, the flip side is if you say to somebody, Hey, if you produce an X that is 
Jack, the quote to you, everything awesome. I'll give you a million dollars. What you're going to get is an X that is awesome, right? You know, a car can be, you know, a, a well-tuned Rolls-Royce or it can be, you know, the, the Soviet, you know, cars that they pumped out, right? They're both cars, but they're worlds apart from each other. And mm -hmm. we can see this in, in the history of energy development, the way you're talking about it, is that subsidized energy is the, the soulless hollowed out version of it. It's the Soviet car version as opposed to the well-engineered Rolls-Royce. Well, and, and so the uh, the incentive problem is is massive. And, you know, the Soviet story about they were, I guess, supposed to hit quotas of weight of nails. So, of course, they got a bunch of really big-ass nails. And, like, that's – I don't know if I'm supposed to say big-ass on the, on the, <laughs> on the day part. Dark, like, we'll save that for the dark web part. They produced a lot of big nails. Right. Large nails to hit the quota faster – even though the smaller nails were arguably more useful, or at least you need some of them, we're seeing the same exact thing with, so if you have a production tax credit on energy, you're gonna produce the most energy you can, whether it's at the right time or at the right place. Oh, those are details that, like an entrepreneur that was caring about market profit would, would concern himself with those details. An entrepreneur going after subsidy profit, oof, doesn't matter. I'm just going to produce as oh, much as Oh, they care about details, just the wrong details. Exactly. They they are still motivated by that profit motive, but what the subsidy, the structure of the subsidy has done is taken that profit motive, and instead of in the Adam Smith sense of things where you're supposed to serve your fellow man, instead it's, well, I can just get this government subsidy. So they're really good. They're really good at, at harvesting the subsidy itself. And I think you hit the big blank Soviet nail on the head there, actually, which is that price signals are real whether you want to believe in them or not. It's actually the signal that the market gives people about what is useful, what is valuable to other people. So the question is, what's driving the price signals? Real people telling you what's really useful in their own lives or a bureaucrat who had, you know, too many beers last night, woke up this morning and said, you know what, I think the price signal should be this. That's the question. I think we did a pretty good job of bringing this around to an energy and environment discussion. You think? I think I tried to talk as much as possible to live up to the expectation you set. You did a good job. Did a great job. Um, so any final thoughts? Do we want to get into RAINS Act at all? I actually think there's an element here that is worth talking about is the Congressional Review Act on the back end. Like, yeah. are we going to see so much of that that at some point somebody's going to say, we should just do the RAINS Act on the front end because so many of these are going to come under the CRA and, like, EPA rules are already going Can to be Can you tell us what the CRA is? So, as I understand it, now I'm not an expert, so let's just... Uh, on that. On that huge grain of salt. As far as I understand it, the Congressional Review Act is a mechanism for Congress to deem a major rule sort of unfit, where they basically say, we're going to nullify an agency action because we just frankly don't like it. I don't think they need a better reason than we just don't like it that much. And it, ha do you, it has to happen within a certain time frame, right? So, so there's a few other parameters. It needs to be filed in the particular way. There's a timeline component to it. There's a few administrative things the administration can screw up. So, it, you know, it's not just that we don't like it. It's that if the administration screws up in a few ways after having made an actual legislative effort, right? So, the government, by pen and by phone, has made a new law, has slightly screwed up on the procedure of it, and then, Travis, to your point, what Congress can do is, with a majority vote in both chambers and the president's signature, wait a second, can repeal the rule. So the president who signed it 
has to now sign the repeal of it. Oh, wait, that's why this is just bullshit. This is just Congress going around trying to say, you know, that we've done something. I mean, this whole episode is going to have to go on the dark web. But, you, you, so, need, you need but, to re-say that. And, and, and the difference between that and the RAINS Act, the RAINS Act would not necessarily give the president the the say on this, right? How how, how does that work? Yeah, so, 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 the, so the CRA, right, uh, what happens is, and if the president doesn't sign it, right, then Congress needs a two-thirds vote to override it. And again, it's happening, like you said, on the back end. The RAINS Act happens on the front end. So before it can become law at all, a majority of Congress needs to approve it. So if you have control over one chamber in, com- in Congress, you can stop the regulation, period. And so that's the beauty of it. Is it reasserts that congressional legislation. Well, and it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a burden of proof. It sort of it raises the hurdle of what, what can you do? How many people have to agree with what you're doing? And there are so many people who disagree with what the EPA is doing, but they just flatly don't care. Exactly. And, and, and so that's, you know, part of it again is prior to you know, about 100 or so years ago, all of what we now call regulations were done through legislation through Congress and in the full process of doing this. All of the great periods of American economic growth, of increasing prosperity, all of those kinds of things happened when regulations weren't a thing, when Congress did laws. So the CRA is window dressing. It's this kind of procedure where Congress gets to do as you were talking about earlier. This kind of like, yeah, we checked the box. The box is nothing under it, but we've checked it from a political standpoint, from a, a fundraising standpoint. Reigns Act is getting back to the actual constitutional process where Congress actually legislates. And like I said, it doesn't just let Obama, Biden, or whoever use their pen and phone to just make laws in whatever fashion they deem fit. So I agree that Reigns Act would be awesome. I, I wouldn't call CRA just window dressing, though. Like, it, it ha- used properly in the right context, it can be effective we have used it less than two dozen times to actually do something. Yeah. We've never used Reigns Act. Well, we haven't put in the law yet. <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't – I would not poo-poo CRA as, that much. However, I would – this goes back to what I was saying a little while ago, though. Even Reigns Act doesn't get to the heart of the matter, which is you have all of these underlying statutes that authorize all of this stuff. And we need to go out and rip them out at the root and replace them if appropriate. I'm, again, I want to reiterate, I'm not advocating for complete environmental anarchy. Not here. I'm not. Um, no, I'm not. On the dark web. I'm not. Um, but I do, I, I do think we need to think long and hard about the utility and morality of these statutes that are currently in place. Well, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, too, because I, I, I have strong feelings about this, Jack. You hear people, go. I hear people in my daily life say things like, oh, it's a real shame that we don't have a national energy policy. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure that I know anybody that I would want to put in charge of said national energy policy, aside from Jack. Jack, I would never have Jack a national would, energy policy. That's why, you, that's why you're a great leader, because you would abdicate that responsibility. Point is, when we have had national energy policy, it either was off the mark from the beginning or quickly becomes off the mark, because as we've said, all, all these statutes go back to a 70s era, you know, a scarcity environment where everything has to be all about efficiency at all costs or cleaner air at all costs. Now we have dramatically cleaner air, and we still say cleaner air at all costs. It's the the times that we have had a national energy or a national environmental policy 
Oof. Bad, Remember bad, what policy bad, is. Bad results, yep. Policy, it's when, you know, absent policy. People are going around their day-to-day lives trying to make a living and do their thing and raise their families, uh, produce energy, use energy as appropriate. Then policy makes you not allowed to do certain elements of that. Which is the point is that national policy is misnamed. It's really the policy of one dude sitting in the White House. Right. National policy is really what the people want to do. Right. It's really a free market. Yes. But uh, And for the sixth time, Jack, I think you're absolutely right. But, you know, it's not just the statutes that give authority. It's actually Chevron deference. So bringing yet another concept in here. Chevron deference is this, this court precedent that if there's any ambiguity whatsoever in a, in a law – the, the agencies have basically free reign to use that ambiguity to do whatever they want. And so part of what's happened as well is for decades now, Congress and the president will work together to write the most ambiguous, vague law possible so they can go out and sell it. They can go to the American people and be like, what does the law do? The law says we're going to have a better everything. It's, it's the jack law. It's the everything's got to be more awesome. And so you look at it and say, what, what does that mean? And then it gets passed in the law because they message it as the everything gets awesomer act. And then an agency says, I think what awesome is, is stealing your gas stove, stealing your car, regulating everything you do, showing up with guns in the middle of the night and stealing everything you own, jacking tax rates to 100 percent. And then you try to sue them and say, that doesn't feel awesome. And then the court says, well, there's all this ambiguity in the law. It just says make things more awesomer. And an agency thinks that this will make it more awesomer. So I guess that regulation is legal. And you think I'm being hyperbolic, but they're about to take your gas stove in real life. Yeah, and the uh, we, the court, defer to the agency. They're the experts. And I got to say, when I worked at an agency that, you know, my my personal work would go through court review and I would go to the oral arguments and the judges would sit there and say, well, because of Chevron, because of Chevron, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, guys, this, uh, I'm not saying that it was terrible work, but it deserved scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing where like, you can't just take an agency at its word. Agencies need scrutiny. It's kind of like the the whole test of like, you can't just subsidize stuff. It needs the market test. It needs to be scrutinized. A lot of agencies are getting away with a lot of stuff because of this Chevron stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to watch. I mean, they, they, it's, and I guess I can, you know, I empathize with the judge who's supposed to be an expert on so many different things, but man, agencies are getting away with way too much. Here, here. And Jack, you're absolutely right. That's only one for you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm late to the game here. Right, I'll, I'll pick it up earlier on in the next one. <laughs> this was great. Richard, thank you. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. If you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Now, normally at this point, I ask our guests if they have any final words. But as you just saw, Richard never has any final words. He just has more words. So we're cutting him off. Travis, any final words from you? No, I'm good. You're good. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>